Hello and welcome to the August 2021 Heart Rhythm O2 Journal podcast. I'm Jeannie Poole, the Editor-in-Chief. The first paper today is called Detection of Fibrotic Remodeling of Epicardial Adipose Tissue in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation, Imaging Approach Based on Histologic Observation by Dr. Ishii and colleagues from Japan. This is a very interesting study and I will mention just the key points and direct you to the excellent editorial provided by our associate editor, Dr. Nazem Akum. The background information for this paper is that fibrotic remodeling of epicardial adipose tissue plays an important role for pro-inflammatory atrial myocardial fibrosis leading to atrial fibrillation. The authors obtained left atrial appendages from 76 patients who had left atrial appendage removal. Pre-procedural CT scans were available to review. Then the authors measured the ratio of central to marginal adipocyte diameter in the epicardial atrial tissue. They identified areas of more or less adipose tissue by its position in the amputated left atrial appendage, referring to these areas as the marginal or central areas. They then looked at the ratio of the central to marginal adipocyte diameter to relate that measurement to fibrotic remodeling. The key points of this study are that one, Abnormal adipocyte characteristics were more likely in the marginal compared to the central epicardial adipose tissue. Next, the authors observed a tight positive correlation between epicardial adipose tissue fibrosis and the ratio of central to marginal adipocyte diameter. And then finally, overall changes including epicardial adipose tissue fat attenuation, myocardial fibrosis, and collagen were greater in patients with persistent atrial fibrillation than in patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. The next paper is entitled, A Smart Approach to Reducing Paroxysmal Atrial Fibrillation Symptoms Results from the Pilot Randomized Control Trial by Michelle Dossett and colleagues. Stress and negative emotions contribute to atrial fibrillation. Mind-body practices decrease stress and negative emotions and may reduce AF episodes and improve quality of life for patients with AF. The authors looked to see if a multimodal mind-body program, the SMART program, positively affect AF-related quality of life in patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. The SMART program includes a number of components focused on mind-body health. Sessions were held virtually every week for eight weeks, and in addition, the subjects were encouraged to practice the skill sets on other days. The authors identified 18 patients to participate. Nine were randomized to start the program immediately and the other to wait for three months. Patients were chosen who were anticipated to be on a stable medical regimen for at least three months. The authors found that for atrial fibrillation-related quality of life, depression, AF symptoms, stress, and being able to cope positively was better in those who received the early treatment. The authors suggest that this pilot data support a larger randomized trial to be considered based upon the results of this virtually delivered mind-body practice program. The next study is Evaluating Outcomes of Same-Day Discharge After Catheter Ablation for Atrial Fibrillation in a Real-World Cohort by Dr. Field and colleagues. This study explores the safety and efficacy of same-day discharge using an IBM MarketScan Commercial Claims and Encounters database. The population targeted were individuals 65 years or younger who had catheter ablation for atrial fibrillation between 2016 and 2020. Using length of stay data, the patients were classified as overnight stay or same-day discharge. A 1 to 3 propensity score matching approach was used and study outcomes were 30 days and 1 year 
after catheter ablation. The authors did not find a significant difference in the composite 30-day post-procedural complication rate between same-day discharge and overnight discharge groups, 2.7 versus 2.8% respectively. The complications most commonly identified were cerebrovascular events but were low, 0.7% in both groups, vascular access events, 0.6% in both groups, and pericardial complications, 0.6% in the same-day discharge and 0.5% in the overnight stay group. AF recurrence rates at one year were similar, 10.2 versus 8.8%. There was no significant difference in those observations. The authors conclude that based upon this data, same-day discharge appears to be a safe approach for patients who have catheter ablation. The next paper is entitled Hemodynamic Intolerance and Pericardial Effusion Associated with High-Frequency Jet Ventilation During Pulmonary Vein Isolation by Dr. Tung and colleagues. These authors looked at hemodynamic and respiratory intolerance during jet ventilation in 194 consecutive patients between 2019 and 2020. Eight patients had to transition to conventional ventilation, six for refractory hypotension, and two for persistently abnormal gas exchange. A new small pericardial effusion was identified in six of the patients. The hemodynamics, respiration, and pericardial effusion resolved quickly after the conversion to standard ventilation. The authors conclude that the majority of their patients receiving jet ventilation did well. The next paper is called Evaluation of Different Ablation Strategies Verifying the Optimal Overlap Ratio in Point-by-Point -point Laser Balloon Ablation for Patients with Atrial Fibrillation by Dr. Nagase and colleagues. Here we have another study looking at ablation techniques. These authors look at point-by-point -point laser balloon ablation and seek to determine what the optimal overlap ratio should be. In 38 patients with atrial fibrillation undergoing PVI with a first-generation laser balloon, the overlap ratios for pulmonary vein anterior to posterior wall were determined and the patients grouped accordingly. The authors note that the recommendation is for 30% to 50% overlapped ablation using a high power of 8.5 watts or more, but note that more precise overlap ratios have not been defined. Their patients were grouped based on the overlap ratios for each PV anterior posterior wall. Group A were those with a 50% 50% overlap, which was 13 patients. Group B were those with a 50% 25% overlap, 15 patients. And group C were those with a 25% 25% overlap, 10 patients. The authors found that the first pass PVI rate per pulmonary vein was higher in group A, that is those who had the 50-50% overlap, than in the other two groups. They note that all pulmonary veins were finally isolated. The first pass time, total laser balloon PVI time, complications, and atrial tachyarrhythmia recurrences during a mean follow-up of 11 plus and minus 5 months did not differ between the groups. They did note a few residual gaps after first pass laser balloon ablations for the PV anterior walls regardless of group A or B. The authors conclude that the greater overlap of the laser balloon ablation suggests a higher first pass success rate. The next paper is entitled Catheter Ablation of Idiopathic Outflow Tract Ventricular Arrhythmias with Low Intraprocedural Burden Guided by Pace Mapping by Dr. Bennett and colleagues. These authors look at pace map guided approach to infrequent outflow tract ventricular arrhythmias compared to high burden patients using standard mapping techniques on the outcome of procedural success. Patients were excluded with structural heart disease unless they were thought to have had a PVC induced cardiomyopathy. Infrequent PVC burden was defined as too few PVCs intraprocedural to do activation mapping. 
22 of 66 total patients had infrequent ventricular arrhythmias. The pre-procedural burden in the infrequent group had been 9.5% on 24-hour ambulatory monitoring and was 13.5% for the patients who had enough PVC burden during the procedure to perform activation mapping. The authors provide detailed information about the procedures, including that the number of pace maps in the infrequent group was 33.6 plus or minus 18.5, and that the surface area of equal to or greater than 95% pace map correlation was 1.9 plus or minus 1.2 centimeters squared, and that the best pace map correlation was 96% with an interquartile range of 92 to 97%. They did not find differences in procedural duration, general anesthesia administration, fluoroscopy, dose or complications. Ventricular arrhythmia-free survival at seven months were similar, 77% for the pace map and 71% for the high burden group. The authors conclude that in patients with low intraprocedural burden of outflow tract ventricular arrhythmias, pace map guided catheter ablation led to comparable outcome to high burden ventricular arrhythmia patients where other standard approaches could be used. The next study is called The Physiologic Effects of Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy on Aortic and Pulmonary Flow and Dynamic and Static Components of Systemic Impedance by Dr. Sidhu and colleagues. The study explores the effects of CRT on aortic and pulmonary blood flow and systemic afterload. In a group of 28 patients undergoing CRT, non-invasive assessment of central hemodynamics were performed, including a wave intensity analysis immediately after implant. The testing was repeated at six months post-implant. The non-invasive measure was performed by obtaining radial, carotid pressure, and femoral waveforms. Systolic and diastolic measurements were made and the aortic pulse wave velocity calculated from the transit time between the carotid to femoral pressure waveforms. Aortic flow recorded using an apical five-chamber echocardiogram view with continuous wave Doppler. A subset of 11 patients also underwent an electrophysiology study and invasive hemodynamic assessment immediately following CRT. CRT response was defined as reduction in LV and systolic volume equal to or greater than 15% at six months, of which 75% were responders. Responders had a significant increase in non-invasive cardiac output and LV, DP, DT max. Responders also had a significant increase in their aortic forward compression wave, both acutely and at follow-up. This correlated well with LVDPDT max. Other hemodynamic measurements were also demonstrated in the responders. The results of the invasive study showed that responders demonstrated favorable hemodynamic measurement and corroborated the non-invasive findings. The authors conclude that cardiac function improves after CRT for a number of different changes that occur, including both the cardiac and vascular system. The next study is Adaptive Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Effect on Electrical Dyssynchrony, a randomized controlled trial by Dr. Hack et al. The purpose of this study was to compare adaptive CRT to conventional CRT on electrical dyssynchrony. This was a prospective double-blind, one-to-one parallel group assignment randomized controlled trial in patients receiving CRT for routine clinical indications. Cardiac CT and 128 electrode body surface mapping was used to assess dyssynchrony prior to the implant and then again six months later. The specific measurements included ventricular electrical uncoupling, which was the difference between the mean left ventricular and right ventricular activation times. 
Additionally, electrical dyssynchrony index was the standard deviation of local epicardial activation times. The study randomized 27 subjects with standard indications for CRT, of whom 53% were ischemic. 15% met strict left bundle branch block criteria. They were randomized to conventional CRT, 15 subjects, or adaptive CRT, 12 subjects. The authors found that there was not a significant difference in electrical dyssynchrony between the two groups and note that the study was underpowered. They did, however, observe that only adaptive CRT reduced interventricular dyssynchrony by reducing right ventricular uncoupling. The next study is called Portable Single Lead Electrocardiogram Devices Accurate for QTC Evaluation in Hospitalized Patients. This is by Dr. Marin and colleagues from Bogota, Colombia. These authors report on their experience using the Cardia Mobile device during the COVID-19 pandemic to measure QT intervals in 128 patients admitted to the hospital for possible COVID illness. They compared the measurements obtained to a standard 12-lead electrocardiogram. QT prolongation was defined as QTC equal to or greater than 470 milliseconds in males or equal to or greater than 480 milliseconds in females. 40 patients were confirmed to have COVID and the correlation results were assessed in both the COVID and the non-COVID groups. The authors found a close correlation between the cardiomobile and the 12 lead measurements of the QT using the Bland-Altman analysis. Also, the Linz concordance coefficient showed excellent agreement, 0.9888, P less than 0.001. This study adds to others that have demonstrated portable ECG methods to be accurate for QT measurements and can reduce contact with potentially infected patients. The next paper is Anxiety and Depression in Inherited Channelopathy Patients with Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillators by Dr. Singh and colleagues. This is a survey study of 65 eligible patients, of whom 32 completed the survey. The authors were using the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale. Patients were identified and offered the survey. Most patients had their device already for at least five years, and most had either Long QT syndrome or Brugada syndrome. 66% of the patients were secondary prevention patients. 34% of the patients had had device-related complications. 41% had had one or more ICD shocks. 12 patients, or 38%, had an abnormal HADS anxiety subscore, and 5 patients, or 16%, had an abnormal HADS depression subscore. The secondary prevention ICD patients were more likely to have had an abnormal HADS anxiety subscore, P equals 0.03. Other factors such as having experienced ICD shocks, device complications, age, sex, and family history of sudden cardiac death were not statistically associated with anxiety or depression. However, the small number of patients in this survey study precludes knowing the real effect of those factors. In general, the patients were noted to have had a high device acceptance. The authors conclude that patients with inherited channelopathies and ICDs demonstrate high device acceptance and moderately high cardiac-specific anxiety. Next up is a paper entitled Quantifying Arrhythmic Long QT Effects of Hydroxychloroquine and Azithromycin with Whole Heart Optical Mapping Simulations. This is by Dr. Uzalak and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the basic cellular mechanism of the proarrhythmic effect of the combination of HCQ and azithromycin. The study uses an ex vivo Langendorf perfused guinea pig heart model along with optical mapping and voltage-sensitive dyes to study the drug effects on the cell membrane ionic currents. The authors found that HCQ had a more profound effect to lengthen the action potential duration compared to azithromycin alone. Also, HCQ was more likely to increase the spatial dispersion of refractoriness. The two drugs combined had 
have the greatest effect. The authors suggest that this model can be used as an effective framework to study the cellular effects of new medications that may have an important effect on repolarization. The last original paper is called Assessment of Primary Prevention Patients Receiving an ICD, Systematic Evaluation of ATP the APRAISE ATP trial. This is a methods paper by Dr. Claudio Sugar and colleagues. This is a trial that actually is resurrecting an interesting and old topic, which is what is the value of antitachycardia pacing in primary prevention ICD patients. The authors are initiating a trial with 150 sites worldwide and 2,600 subjects targeted for enrollment. The primary endpoint will be time to first all-cause shock in patients randomized to shocks only or shocks plus antitachycardia pacing. This will be an important trial. As we know, studies such as made at RIT have shown a mortality reduction in a group of patients who were programmed with a single high-rate zone and only one round of antitachycardia pacing prior to shock delivery, compared to patients programmed with multiple treatment zones. Inappropriate and appropriate shocks were significantly less in the made at RIT trial in the single zone versus the multi-zone programming. But notably, the number of ATP rounds were also substantially less, and the relative contribution of each of these components to the mortality re reduction, if related at all, is unknown. With the option of simpler ICDs and with fewer device-related complications, potentially, it is important to better understand this question, and we will look forward to the completion of this trial. The next paper is a review paper. This is by authors Weiwei, Neary, and Bernie. They describe the management of ventricular tachycardia in patients with cardiac sarcoidosis and some of the challenges with this special group of patients. The final paper in this issue is called Lessons Learned from Experimental Models of Cerebral Vascular Aneurysms to Improve Endocardial Device Occlusion of the Left Atrial Appendage by Drs. Krishnan and Natali. In this article, the authors address the problem of left atrial appendage occlusion device links. They describe an approach that they have used taken from the anatomic similarities with cerebral vascular aneurysms that have been treated with coil embolization, though experimental models have also studied endothelial denudation using radioactive coils, mechanical debridement, or RF ablation. The authors' group tested a method of endothelial denudation in 43 patients with a left atrial appendage leak and were able to eliminate the leaks around their occlusion devices. This paper describes the author's development of this technique. This concludes the HRO2 podcast for the August issue. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again in two months.